This is the Mentors for Military podcast. So Damien and I were uh, we were kind of chatting back and forth, and he kind of reached out and presented an outline about a podcast that we could do. And um, it sounded really cool because it was taking much of the training and the learning from combat and applying that to um, your teaching methodologies. And, and when I started thinking about it, I started thinking about it in terms of even a leader, of not just in training platforms and settings and stuff, but certainly as a leader in um, trying to dementor or coach other individuals and I guess both are apply when you really think about what a teacher is but Damien maybe you can kind of give us an idea of uh, when you were looking at all of this where where were you kind of thinking about the subject or the topic a lot of this was kind of started when I, I was really blessed to do my first deployment I was attached to um, to the army at to third and seventh group and so um, was able to had some great people and and I think that whole their methodology and, and really worked and was I thought it was um, had a really important, huge impact on me and how I kind of moved forward. Really blessed that that was my first deployment to Afghanistan. I don't think I would have done as, um, not that I did well, but I don't even know if I would have made it back three times from there with, without having those people there to kind of mentor me. And, um, it just seemed more of a, like, okay, obviously there, we're going to focus on training and then that was kind of a focus, but it was taken in like a, in a positive light, right? We're going to train these people in a positive way and, and be excited about it. Um, but what happened was I felt like the way that I had been trained EOD wise was, had not been, you know, ultra successful, not that they were bad, but basically it was a lot of, um, Iraq vets had trained me or trained us and it just seemed like, okay, we're going to give you what we did and what happened to us there. And then this is how it's going to work. And this is what you're going to do. We're going to tell you a story about what we did in Iraq. Well, shit, man, that doesn't work here. Obviously it didn't work. I lost, I mean, I lost a guy early on. I made a mistake and missed an IED and, uh, killed one of our commandos, you know? And, um, and then those procedures that happened after that, okay, the mind, we call it mind strike procedure. How are we going to go get that guy? Well, whatever I had been taught didn't work. Wow. None of it worked. Um, and it wasn't anybody's fault. It was just that that methodology, I, I was like, okay, well, this doesn't work for me, right? These flow charts that I was taught, that doesn't work when things go sideways for me. Didn't work for me. Might work for some people. So, um, it was really early on then that I decided, okay, I've got to go backwards and then refocus on um, what's going to work for me. And then fortunately, I was able to kind of, uh, through trial and error, unfortunately, sometimes, you know, things don't work so well. Um, through the next two deployments and with gaining more experience was kind of tried to implement those. But then it was coming back and getting assigned to basically what, not our schoolhouse, but our advanced evaluation unit. <clears throat> be like uh, given the curriculum and said, here, we want you to update all this or do whatever you did there and have changed, for instance, the mind strike procedure. And it was just able to kind of go backwards and, and develop a new, hopefully a new procedure that was able to be more open-ended and more open-minded and not so restrictive to at one AO. You know, I figured you could tr- learn things that you can take anywhere right? Anywhere in the world, you should be able to drop me and in two days, like a right seat, left seat, and I'm good to go. It shouldn't be dependent on, oh, I was just in Afghanistan or I was just in Iraq. And, and, um, I think a lot of people were, were just critical of 
calling it being good at basics. So I was like, well, I'm going to just come out with fundamentals, like the essentials. It's not basic, mm. you know, thought patterns and waves of thinking aren't basic. They're fundamental. And there was some kind of pushback from senior, you know, people that have done like four or five, six deployments didn't want to do anything new. You know, they didn't want to learn new things and that was okay. But the junior guys seemed to really kind of appreciate it. And it's an ever evolving thing. I'm gone now. They've taken anything and now it's up to the next guys to, you know, to make it even better. So that was kind of the, I always thought that was interesting. Just learning how to learn. I thought was interesting. Yeah. Well, and it's sort of like what you guys were talking about earlier, you and Scott Johnson about the lessons learned from Northern Ireland and and the, the challenges and stuff. And, then mm-hmm. if there was a lot of the lessons learned from that that was applied to the training, you'd have been a lot more advanced. I think it's got to come back to fundamentals, Damien. Like you said, you know, there's so many variables and, and everything's constantly evolving that you can't be prescriptive with it and say, follow step one by step two by step three to, to get it done. You know, it, it's, it's got to be more the mindset of allowing the person to make decisions and make a decision based on what's on the ground in front of them, you know. So uh, you you can't just lay it down in a series of steps, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, Damien, I, I love what you said, and it's a great opening. Um, the one thing I disagree with is that it's not anyone's fault. I completely disagree with that because, I mean, we all know that combat's a pretty fluid environment. And, you know, when you when you try and apply a cookie-cutter approach and you're teaching, you know, individuals, it's the same thing, and, and it's endemic across societies. It's not just in the military as well, but the, the approach of just giving people fish instead of teaching them how to fish, right, you know, and just saying, like, well, like, like Scott Johnson just said, you do this, you do this, you do this, and these are your tactics to solve any problem, right? And, and it's... You can't force square pegs in around holes, and, and it seems like we try sometimes. And then because we're all, you know, humble people for the most part, we say, oh, well, it's not really anybody's fault. And, oh, yeah, you know, it only cost me a couple whatever, but it is somebody's fault because day one in the Q course and on an ODA, I was told, you know, we don't train for the next war or last war. We train for the next war. You know, we're always innovating and trying to learn from our lessons and, and apply those lessons looking forward proactively. Um, so... I disagree. It is somebody's fault. And that command needs to adapt. And because this isn't the first time we've been at war as a society, I mean, as a military. Right. It's, that's at a higher level, though, Scott, isn't it? It's, it's very difficult to change that upper echelon. And when when you're on the, the ground, in, particularly in the conventional forces, you know, when you're going through the Q course, you're talking about special forces and you get a lot more remit where... Mm-hmm. When EOD in in particular, you know, you you're, you're attached with conventional forces, and and to all extents and purposes, you are conventional forces. Mm-hmm. You you're still governed by that rule set then, um, that yeah. that's historically hundreds of years old. You know, I mean, we we do things in the the British conventional army that's that's been from the Boer War and things like that. You know, yeah. and it's completely out of context and out of scope and but it's just that mindset to get things to evolve and that's that's the best thing i think about special forces is you get given that ability to think for yourself and think outside the box and implement those thoughts and processes i guess but you would think if there was any, you know, I don't want to say EOD is definitely not conventional because there's a lot of, of soft applications in EOD. But if there's any other element within the military that would try and be forward leaning and learning from past mistakes, it would be EOD. I mean, you know, those TTPs have been evolving, you know, good Lord, look at from World War II to now. I mean, you know, just, you know, what people have done and technology and whatever else. And 
And if you're not staying cutting edge in, in a field like that, then that's just apathy. I mean, across the board, there's there's absolutely no justification for not trying to be as, as proactive and forward-leaning as possible. And, and I can't wrap my head around it. I'm not trying to be argumentative, but I, I, I know tradition. I understand conventional military, you know, traditions and everything else. But I cannot wrap my head around apathy when, when lives are at stake in a, in a combat environment. No, it's yeah, ironic, you're, really. You're, yeah, you're right. I mean, you're right because uh, I think part of it was um, there was an incredibly steep learning curve. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, I, <laughs> to say I, the I, least, I, yeah. I, I, Your I, learning curve is vertical, brother. It was, <laughs> yeah, it was, it was insane. Um, uh, and a lot of what I saw in EOD um, was that um, we have a lot of tools, right? We would be given a lot of tools or we'd be getting this new metal detector or this and that. Or we'd be waiting for this next thing that can find the non-metal ID. And that's, everything's what, four or five years behind? Three, at least three? At least three. And that's if they're like on top of everything and testing it. And that just became frustrating. You know, when it's like, oh, this metal detector or this metal detector. No, it's not that. You're not even seeing those wires. You know, you can't even, like you would test people. And it's such a myopic view of this kind of battlefield, you know. Um, well, one of the things that you said that that kind of asked me up was wasn't anything about about you and your experience, but is that you were taught an Afghanistan mission, you were taught Iraq war TTPs, right, and SOPs, and and just that very statement alone, right? I mean, you can give people gear all day long, and, and gear is never going to catch up to the enemy's capabilities, right? And we always forget the enemy has a vote, right? Like we can plan in a vacuum and do all this stuff, but the enemy has a vote. Um, I mean, so just not teaching you the right TTPs for the environment and not contextualizing that alone is just, oh, I'm not trying to be Mr. Negative this morning. I already admitted I had a late night last night, but uh, apologies. It was really, at that time, though, uh, there hadn't been a whole bunch of platoons that had gotten, the IED threat in Afghanistan really didn't ramp up until later on. You know, it wasn't this, it wasn't this dismounted threat wasn't this, you know, and we hadn't had a lot of platoons go through there. I think we had only had a, a couple. One had had um, a really rough one. So we did listen to them uh, and, and get some kind of uh, debrief from them as well. It just that at the time, it was kind of that perfect storm of it was bad timing. Um, and that's all that the guys knew. So that's what, you know what I mean? Like when you're telling a sea story or a war story to kind of uh, enforce what you're teaching, that's kind of all they had to enforce. And I thought, okay, well, how do I stay relevant as an instructor once it's been two years and I haven't been in the war, right? Like, how do you stay relevant? The only way is through your thought processes. Well, it's the same I way mean, out I, in the private sector, though. I mean, if you're actually yeah. trying to stay abreast of uh, your competitive marketplace, you know, you're, you're having to then study um, the, those threats. You're having to understand what things they're doing in the marketplace that's going to change and p- cause a paradigm shift. So are you are you part of that leading edge or are you falling behind? So it's interesting when you're talking about those individuals that were trying to bring um, their old stories to the table and kind of giving training by death by PowerPoint is what it sounded like instead of yeah. really applying those skills and that knowledge and trying to say, hey, listen, our enemy is evolving. We have to admit that. We have to have um, the wherewithal and the understanding to admit that our our enemy is 
beginning to learn and continuing to learn how to improve these where it makes it much more difficult for us to come into the battle place and actually solve these. So unless we're thinking that way, and each time we look at an EOD situation or whatever the case may be, if we're not thinking in that mindset, then we could cost people lives. Sure. Yeah, that's across the board. But then it was just a, it was a really just an interesting way to become an instructor and, and just try to figure out what's best for each student. Like what's best, what's the best approach? How can I apply these things that aren't individual to me? A six foot three, you know, even, I mean, even the physiological things, oh, I'm taller, I'm gonna see things differently. Um, You know, just every single thing that comes into a decision that's made on a battlefield in a high stress environment, you know, and then being given those opportunities to try these things out and, and apply those things. And where could I find different influences from different, you know, paths in life that have nothing to do with the military that could be kind of applied to those kind of thought processes. It was just just out of curiosity, Damien, how many yep. of your peers in the instructor world took that mm-hmm. same kind of individualistic and contextualized approach to try and, you know, tailor each message to each individual student? Like I mean gross percentage wise, don't don't throw anybody in the bus name wise, you know, like oh, oh no sergeant um, whoever was a <laughs> No, I, I mean um, when I showed up at the at the at the training unit, uh Everybody was really receptive. They were excited. Um, it was definitely, um, uh, you know, I mean, you know how rotations go. You're there for a couple of years and guys rotate out and, you know, uh, but everyone. Because I know how that goes, what, what I've seen through some of my travels, with, you know, with Marsoc and, and elsewhere. And I know, Kat, you have some stories from previous conversations about going through the CST pipeline and everything else that, you know, receiving training that wasn't highly tailored to what you guys are going to be doing and stuff as well. So I'm not trying to monopolize the conversation here with Damien. <laughs> no, no, they, they did. They, they actually did a really good job at at, at taking all of these things that, and trying to always stay really current. It was a um, it was a it was actually a really supportive environment for the couple of years that I was there. It was good. Oh, cool. Yeah, that's good. To hear. I was, yeah, I was lucky. You know, through the GWAT era, I mean, guys were getting pushed in who weren't qualified, you know, so you not only are, you know, up against people coming into your pipeline that may have looked, they look well on paper, but they're not actually fit for the position of what they're doing. And just like in my position, I mean, I was CST2, technically one, and I mean, Scott can attest to this by just having the issues that we ran into with sending underqualified just numbers overseas so i can see you know when you you talk about fault it's not i mean yes there is always like someone to blame but ultimately you're you're having your unit your capabilities and then politics all wrapped up in one that you're having to keep up with so um and and it's hard you know i mean you have the knowledge that's saying yes this will work out there this is the type of person that we need out there this is the training that we need out there but ultimately if it doesn't fit the bigger picture, what looks good on paper. I mean, and I hate to sound disgusting and ugly about it, but it's who cares about those lives? You know, it's just like, oh, we'll celebrate them after the fact. But I mean, they're going to send them out there to do that anyways. And it's, I think us, it's frustrating for us as guys and gals on the ground where we're like, no, this is not working. But someone with more stars on their chest is like, no, we're going to do this regardless. So, um, I'm, I'm halfway on, on both sides. Yeah, ironic part of it is, I guess, you know, particularly when it comes to EOD, is, is bomb disposal, as it was originally called, was, was, you know, kind of founded in the Second World War with ideas of how you're going to dispose of something. And you, you'd, you'd be away from a device and say, right, I'm going to go and try this. Because 
you had to say before you went up to the, the, the weapon because if it didn't work, you, you weren't coming back, you know. And he was constantly evolving through trial and error and coming up with the solutions that were effective with, with those airdrop weapons in the Blitz and things like that, you know. So to come and see it now with people like Damien having this mindset of, right, we need to evolve and constantly change and then being put down then by the higher echelon saying, well, no, this is the rules, this is what you're going to go to. You know, it's it's just they've lost all sense of what the roots are, particularly in EOD, and it's it's frustrating, I know. I think that goes along great with just anybody who's getting out of the military that has the experience that has been on the ground. I mean, they're, we're disposable, you know what I mean? Like, you've done your time, you're gone, and we don't want to hear back from you. And like you said, it's like keeping that, you know, the subject matter experts on site. Like, you guys have been living this, and unfortunately, you've been having to use it as trial and error. But like you said, trial or the error is you're losing guys on the battlefield, you're learning on the battlefield, which is the wrong answer to what we're trying to develop here. And, um, no, I just, I, I think that, like, what Damien, like, what you're saying is keeping you or your peers up to speed on what is going on and, and more involved in, in the process of creating and actually making more tr- successful tri- trials. I mean, that's where it needs to be at. They don't need to be getting rid of guys that just because they may not, you know, be in the service anymore, they really need to utilize their expertise. And I will say it's, it's difficult. Um, I'm, I don't, I only know Navy EOD. I don't know the other branches, but part of, uh, part of it is also keeping your, your ego out of the equation. Uh, that's a, that's a, difficult part as well uh, because I have my field that I was focused on I thought that was the most important um, IEDs were all that mattered and uh, and that was it like we're going to war and nothing else matters but like what you were saying part of our other job is the other stuff like I've got to still know underwater stuff I've got I've kind of because when we go through training we're getting we have to still have those skills somewhat right we got to have those foundational skills because they some they will still apply at some point. Like you can take these things I learned from, like what you were saying, like those airbursts, all the dispensed and you know munitions and and all those things have safeties and points that I've all you can apply in other ways. But even when I first got to the unit, I'd just come back from war, and I was like, well, nothing else matters. It's just IEDs, and I don't care about every other division. You know, that's how I was, like militantly focused on, <laughs> on just that stuff. And over over the time, I was able to you know calm down and, and, and understand that I've still, these guys still have to know all of these other aspects. They can't just be focused on IDs, but the, the, the platoons that we're coming through that are just like attached to NSW teams or, or, uh, or other kinds of units, we were able to tailor, you know, we're tailoring training for, you know, more for I towards IDs and, and, and real life, you know, you know, combat uh, IED scenarios. But um, I think taking me, especially taking my, trying to always keep my ego in check when you're, as an instructor, it was 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 hugely important every and day. And that's a great point because our egos affect everything we do. I mean, in, in our cultural biases and our experiences and our individual knowledge base, that all affects how we approach a, a given problem. And what we fail to see a lot of times, and again, this isn't strictly military, um, it's a, a gross misadherence to the fact of, a, a, you know, the, the sight picture of a, a larger picture out there. And, you know, any, any MARSOC dudes can laugh when I say this, cause they probably are, have been waiting, you know, 10 minutes for me to say it out loud. But, you know, I would constantly tell them all the time, 
get your ego out of it and be proactive instead of reactive. And especially in a, in a combat scenario, when you're reacting to things, it's almost inherently bad, right? React to ambush, react to IED, react to whatever, um, react to contact. Um, but when you're being proactive and looking at problem sets, it gives you almost a, a pause point to where you can look at that problem set and, and figure out the right ways, to, you know, course of action development, course of action, everything else. When you're, when you're proactively looking at a problem, with with while removing your ego it's it's a lot easier to actually solve that problem set than when you're reacting to a thousand other constraints there you know the environment the culture the logistics people shooting at you people being wounded a whole bunch of other stuff in there right so when you add all that stuff up we've got to make sure that we're doing the right measures to train our people across the board uniformly and what they need to know when you come back from a combat situation or in any environment for that matter and you're gonna what you're gonna apply to your teaching skills are gonna be those things you're most passionate about and so we all do that type of thing and Damien I'm assuming in your case it was something that was very close to home and so you know when when you're losing guys that are brothers and loved ones and everything and you're you're gonna come back and you're gonna say hey listen um you need to focus on this. This is reality. And and you think about even the Vietnam vets that when they came back and started training um, the soldiers of that era, you know, in the 70s and stuff that had not experienced Vietnam. And they were trying to be even a drill sergeant roles or a platoon sergeant roles and saying, hey, listen, this is uh, really important that you, you understand that this could cost lives. Well, we were rolling into an era where it was the Cold War period, and you know it was it was very relaxed, and we didn't understand the combat situation. In the last, you know, 17 years, we've been in a very hyper vigilant or a very hyper period of time frame where people need to understand that when they do go to a situation, they know how to handle that situation because they only have seconds to be able to make decisions that could cost other people's lives, including themselves. And so the training takes on a different type of or coaching, mentoring, those types of things takes on a, a different role. And, um, and I think, you know, in the private sector, you know, when you start thinking about uh, how you, you start applying those training skills or mentoring or coaching, again, you're trying to relay or teach individuals about making decisions, whether it's uh, in choices in life or go to college or go off and do something uh, with themselves or you're trying to help them learn a new skill or a new trade or something of that nature, you're applying what you know. You're, you're bringing to the table the passion and, and the knowledge that you have. And I agree, you have to take the ego part out of it, but that is part of who you are, you know, too, yeah. because it's going to be that knowledge and experience that you're going to bring to the table. It, it is you, really. It's a double-edged sword. It is. It is a double-edged sword because your experiences and your ego make you valuable in, in the stuff that you've accomplished, make you valuable to teach that to others. But you can't, like like Scott Johnson said earlier, you can't be myopic in how you approach problem sets and look at everything through the individual straw of, you know, that laser, this is what we need to train on. I mean, I, I came back from one trip and wrote a series of nasty letters to Panasonic for the keyboards on their tough books, right? You know, make them more easy to type on and whatever else. So, you know, trying to get the lessons learned. Uh, I'm kidding. I'm trying to take it down a, a more <laughs> lighthearted way. But uh, I was spending so much time on keyboards typing all the time over there. But uh, would do that. That is the worst. There's a lot of warriors out there who now are better typists because I got Panasonic to change the layout and that rubbery texture on their tough books. So, <laughs> I think the industry as a whole should thank me. <laughs> that is the worst. Those are the worst keyboards ever made. The See, I knew I would resonate with somebody right, out there. Those right. things are horrific. Horrible. When you're trying to type a 10-page report on that, it's like, and I'm a touch typist, so trying to push it, like, oh, God. 
we talked a little bit too, Damien, about the, uh, you know, some of the relaxing, uh, the, you know, and I mentioned about approaching situations and really trying to slow the time down and, and the breathing and, and relaxation. I know you've gone through different types of, of training, not only in like jujitsu and stuff like that to learn how to defend yourself and those types of things, but there's a lot of that that tries to bring you to center, to tries, you know, that, that attempts to try to, to calm you down and bring you to a point to where you can actually focus. And that's one of the things, of course, you're trying to do as well through your teachings. Yeah, I think that was a big one was when I realized after my first IED strike that my heart rate had gone up and obviously all your, your visions affected, um, the procedures that I was trying to remember didn't seem to make sense and metal detectors going off on everything. And that wasn't supposed to have happened apparently, but they didn't realize that when you get blown up, someone gets blown up all the rounds from all their mags are everywhere. So what's the point of me using a metal, like all these things were things I remembered and, um, uh, so yeah, that was a huge part of it. Once I got, um, into, uh, becoming into an instructor position was that I realized later on by the third, uh, by the third deployment and we had another IED strike. Um, we have one every, uh, just not one every time, but, uh, I realized, oh, I remember everything because my breathing was, was better, right? My vision was better. I controlled the scene a lot better. I was in command of kind of what was going on, not command, but I mean, I was in command of my abilities Sure. and I remembered it all. So though that kind of, that, that proved that since I was able to remember it um, and my brain was kind of functioning, right. Then my breathing was probably better. Everything was slower. Um, and I remembered all the procedures. So it, that seemed to have worked to have worked. And, and that was definitely something that I focused on with some guys was when you have the ability to slow down and breathe, and, and take account all of, take into account all of your surroundings when you have the time to do that, especially working on an IED. Um, I mean, cause this is the whole thing with IEDs and if you find the IED, you should beat it. Right. Generally. I mean, it, if I, <laughs> the hard part was finding it, you know I mean? The, okay. the hard part wasn't really getting rid of it. I mean, unless you're really messing with it and, and it, and you're, and that just happens and I get it, that does happen. Um, but once I, if I was, you know, if you were shown the IED by, by local, then generally you could take the measures, a lot of measures to protect yourself. Um, so it was really going backwards is basically what, what happened with me was, uh, the IED, we focus so much on the IED. Once we get on top of it, it's before that, where you're going to win. It's, it's all of that. It's mission planning, it's threat assessments and, and, you know, terrain assessments, all that. Yeah. I mean, I spent 10 times more time on mission planning than I did you know, working on how am I going to, which wire am I going to cut? That's, that's kind of a fallacy. Yeah. I mean, rehearsals, right? Something as simple as just preparing and rehearsing and, and getting the muscle memory down. Um, people always laugh when they say like, what's one of the strengths of SF that people don't realize that Hollywood doesn't talk about? I'm like the absolute preparedness and rehearsals that we do prior to hitting an objective or prime to do whatever, you know, the, the 10,000 dry fires on a range before you ever fire a round out, you know, and just getting that muscle memory down. So the slowest, smooth and smooth as fast, you know, um, and, and getting you through. So it's that absolute preparedness. And, and in the EOD world, I can only imagine, I mean, you know, as an 18 Charlie, I got taught, you know, basic, you know, UXO stuff and mines and whatever else. But man, if there's an EOD dude around, I wasn't going to be playing with anything like that anywhere. 
You can only do so much in a training environment, though. I think that's part of the challenge is that you can't simulate that type of um, aspect that you just described, you know, where your vision starts narrowing, your stress level goes up, your blood pressure is shooting up skyrocket. I mean, you're trying to stay focused and trying to find that um, get get inside your head to the point of what do I do next? Because all of these things are going on in that type of setting that it's difficult for you to try to pull it in. You can you can do all the simulations you want in a non-combat environment. It's just not. You no, know, I be agree. The same. You can't you can't inject that uniformly. But in certain communities, you absolutely can replicate a lot of the stressors by you know building the scenarios and building the complexity and and taking you know I can. I could have looked at my MARSOC Marines and, and almost two, a 12-man course, right? I had 12 different points of interest with each person that I could inject stressors. Some dudes wouldn't, re they could go days without sleeping, you know, or, or stressing and whatever else. But, you know, if there was a slight imperfection in one of their products or what they were trying to do, then that stressed them out. So you can find what stresses people out and in inject stressors into scenarios and environments so that they are more relevant to combat situations. You're never going to replicate combat, obviously. I mean, you know, but um, if you look at, you know, um, buds and the Q course and whatever, live fire jewels and everything else, you know, stress shoots and all that stuff. You can inject a lot of stressors, you know, have somebody run around, do a five mile run, do 25 push ups, and then start shooting on the range, you know. That gets your heart rate up, that makes you sweat. You got a little, you know, um, you know, dizziness or whatever from almost, you know, heat stroke and all that other stuff. You can inject stressors into training so that you can replicate a bit of that. So th there's so many inputs coming in in a bad situation. Some of those can be replicated, like Scott said, in in training and rehearsals beforehand. And you almost preload that experience then that, you know, comes from being on the ground and going through the situation. That's the best way of learning. But you can preload some of that with, with doing things under stressful situations. And, and when the shit hits the fan, then you've got some of the experience already in your muscle memory and in your, your, your actual memory to say, right, hang on, I, I can focus now and see what's what's going on. This is what I need to do. And you start moving forward and working through it. But if you didn't have that preloaded experience, the very first time an IED goes off, uh, you know, you come under contact, whatever it is, you just fall to pieces because you've never experienced any of those inputs coming into your body at one time. And you just can't deal with it and you, you fall apart. You know, so the, the more you can rehearse and, and get those um, uh, that experience whilst not being under a combat situation or a combat level, it's still good for your body to have that anyway. I know like when I went through the CSC course, they went, they taught us a bunch of techniques regarding, you know, getting our heart rate down, breathing under control, everything. So when you actually, when the shit does hit the fan, then you react appropriately. Now, do they, I'm, I'm assuming so. But do they, um, both on the SAS side as well, do they condition you as individuals? Because I know a lot of the times when you you focus so much on the technicalities of, you know, going out to um, defuse a bomb or all the um, technical aspects of it, but how do they teach you? I mean, what is some of the training that they teach you to bring you back to center, to make you see clearly, hear clearly, you know, when, when shit does hit the fan? That, I think a lot of our listeners would get a lot from um, how you guys go back to center. <laughs> Bring it to um, the den. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, um, 
You want to go ahead first? You go ahead first, Damien, okay. because there's going to be uh, two complete right, different answers here. <laughs> and, and, and the British one is going to be a lot more comical than the American one. <laughs> no, I mean, it's um, it's an ongoing process, and it's such an it's an also an incredibly individualized process, I think. I'll, I, I mean, I can be honest, the first time I saw someone get blown up and, and what that, uh, it's odd. It's an odd thing to see someone without three limbs and half a face. It's strange. And uh, it, it, I remember uh, running up, um, the CCT actually hopped out of the truck and started sprinting as I was trying to grab my middle metal detector. And I was like, oh, this is the first lesson. I guess I don't always have time to get a metal. You know, I was brand, I was really, it was my first deployment. And I just sprinted up to, to meet him, to get up to him. And, and we got up to the, the Afghan who had been blown up. And it was just odd. It looked strange. You know, it took a second. For that to, to register, process, yeah, yeah, but it, and it's and that's what I tried to tell the guy, the newer guys, is that it's okay, you know, you're you're gonna do the right thing. You, I, I, you know, I've I've rarely been in a, a combat situation and seen people what you would call what people would consider fail. Everyone's trying to do their best, you know. Mo every time I've been in any situation like that, uh, so and then every time you see someone kind of that happen again and again, it, it I wouldn't say it numbs me, but it made me. I was already cognizant of it and I was kind of, okay, I'm more used to this and, and that. Uh, but we try to induce stress in lots of different ways with, with as far as IED training goes. Um, there's lots of different methods, you know, we can utilize to do that. But I think instructor wise, what was important was if you, that you're able to take what would, would I'm not going to say failures. I made mistakes that cost people, you know, cost, you know, commando, I think his life, and then uh, in my first deployment. And then on the last one, even when I felt pretty good with my procedures, there was one little thing I could have done. It wasn't my fault that he lost, that the commando kneeled on an ID. I told everyone not to go there. Uh, but could I have marked it? Yes. I should have, could have for sure. Thinking that they, you know, but those, those little tweaks that as instructors, if you can take what you've really done, and I think what we were talking about humility-wise, it's easy to stay humble when you've made real mistakes that have really cost people stuff. That, mm -hmm. That's going to be inherent in you. Um, so as far as bringing the people back to center, I think that was important was to have instructors that had had real-world experience. The guys would listen to you. The men and women, mm -hmm. they would listen to you and, and take that into account. And then you could kind of apply that into the drills and, and, and the stress scenarios. And then that was able, I think, to facilitate more of their learning. Do you use those techniques? I mean, not so much as an instructor, or, you know, but I mean, in your personal life, like some of the things that you learned while, you know, for to actually do your job well. But I mean, I, I'm sure you've been in situations where you, your emotional and physical <laughs> set has gotten you to where maybe you needed to look back and be like, okay, this isn't the same scenario, but I am feeling the exact same way. Uh, well, yeah, that's been my main problem since I've gotten back from the war. Is try I, I was not as successful in my personal life as I was over there for sure. Uh, I tried to. Um, I think I poured a little too much of what I was of of my life into being a teacher, and that definitely was difficult. Other aspects, I try to, but um, I think more so my outside interests have um, I've tied them into each other. Both be like uh, the EOD, the you know the combat experience which was amazing and into like some kind of other methods i think jujitsu has helped me um i kind of tied those together learning that helped me become a better teacher just certain things i would, I would like i said i was you try to take things from everything you do and 
implement that into your life and your learning style and teaching style. Yeah, for sure. Give me the British side of that though, because I want to hear the I want to hear yeah. the comedy. I mean, I, I got out in two thousand and four, so it was a little bit different back then, I guess. You know, and the the bulk of British EOD experience was gained through Northern Ireland in the seventies, eighties, and, and early nineties, and when you're talking about stresses and things like that, and the British mentality seems to be, no matter what, about having a stiff upper lip. And yeah. there's no focus on, you know, the, the, the benefits of jujitsu, you said, you know, massive benefits. And people should be encouraging that and enforcing that within the, the structured training environment when you sat back on camp for 18 months in between deployments. Uh, and, the, you know, the, the benefits of, the combat side of that and being able to process um, thought process under stressful situations when you, you're rolling on a map or, or whatever it is. But the, the British, they just didn't have anything like that. And it was just a case of a lot of people shouting at you saying, just get a grip of yourself and you know what you've got to do. And it's great when you sat in a classroom being told, this is what you, the process you need to think about. But then when, when, you're on the ground, whether it be in a training scenario and somebody's, you know, exerting some kind of stress in you through whatever it be, like Scott said, uh, physical activity before doing something or running around or somebody's got the back of your helmet and they're just ragging your head around just to, to put pressure on you, whatever it is. <laughs> or whether you're in a combat situation, it's it's just the British attitude to it was, you know, just, just get a grip of yourself. And you 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 talking fun I got almost the same experience as you you know we 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 got to um uh, it wasn't a, an IED strike it was um a conventional weapon that had gone off and I come out the back of the Land Rover and run past this mound didn't know what it was and got to the the first person I was trying to help and it was only once everything had kind of got um uh, processed through and we was coming back to to get our kit out of the back of the wagon that the mound that I, I went past was somebody who'd been blown up, you know, and very difficult to even comprehend that that was a person that was just kind of split open on the floor and I'd almost stepped in coming out the back of the Land Rover. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and Robert and I were talking about this and the British mentality of dealing with that afterwards, we kind of had the the battalion Padre come round to, to, to all of us EOD guys because it was a multinational uh, EOD force, uh, and they were Germans and um, uh, Danes that had been blown up. And the Padre kind of come round and said, you know, you, you've, you've seen some not great stuff today, and uh, there were six guys died. Let's, let's go in the bar and have a couple of beers. And that's kind of the British mentality of dealing with things. <laughs> it's just, we'll just drink it away, you know. And it's completely <laughs> absurd to... I mean, logically, you think about the what drinking does to your body anyway when you're trying to deal with stressful situations you know it, it, it's there's zero help in it and we all know that that alcohol is the, the root to all when <laughs> you've got some kind of um issue that you need to process but that, that's kind of i the don't Brit- know that what are you talking about <laughs> <laughs> that's kind of the british army's way of dealing with things and it, it's very stuck in, in like i said in the late 1800s and the mentality with with dealing with things so it's a difficult one no, i think it's a great story because i think you also have the same types of challenges when it comes to ptsd over there in great britain as well and how they uh, they treat the soldiers that come back with that 
Um, I think it's just more just a lack of knowledge. And what we're talking about here is that very same thing. If you're not, um, if you're not being taught about what's really going on and understanding and getting that deep root understanding, then you're going to be destined to keep making the same mistakes over and over and over again. And so it's that knowledge and that experience and that wisdom that people bring back to the table, whether it's in, you know, training EOD, whether it's training, um, you know, individuals to be entrepreneurs or be whatever. I mean, you have to bring some kind of wisdom, experience, and knowledge to the table and keep infusing that to those people who are listening to you. And hopefully they are listening, or you're going to be doomed to repeat the same failures of the people before you. And in this case, it could be truly a life or death situation. Absolutely. For me as well, you know, going back to the British thing, it's the willingness to learn as well. It's not just the knowledge. It's people's willingness to learn. Yep. Amen. Yeah, you're right. I, I, I had to check myself at the end of my instructor tour because it had been three years and um, I had sort of uh, been one of the main instructors there. Um, and then towards the end, you know, you're starting to feel a little irrelevant because people are coming back from Iraq. They're coming back from Syria. Uh you're not, and I don't want to say irrelevant in a bad way. It's just, it's the normal kind of way of things that you need new blood infused to kind of keep things fresh. And I caught myself a couple of times, like you catch your ego, like, no, like, listen to what I'm saying. It matters. (laughs) You know what I mean? I outrank you. (laughs) (laughs) I summarized a little bit, but I think it'd be helpful to kind of bring home what your concerns were as it related to this type of thing and developing those methodologies to be successful and those influences and stuff. I think the main thing was just obviously staying open-minded and, and, and trying to be proactive and not reactive. I think that was a pretty consistent point with everything. And knowing that not every way of learning is the best way for every single person, especially as a teacher, you know, not your, the, what you're good at naturally is probably not going to be what you're best at teaching, maybe, because those things come natural to you. So I think breaking those things, that's kind of a lot of what my focus was, was, oh, this was, this felt natural to me, but can I teach this? Is that even teachable the way I, I did it? Oh, okay, it's not, because that guy wasn't getting it. This brand new EOD tech, whoever it was, it doesn't even, I think in anything you're doing, that person's not getting it. So either I don't know the procedure well enough to teach it, because they're not getting it. And I don't mean just one person, but I'm talking about 10, 20 people. They're not understanding it the way I'm doing it. So then I don't either know the procedure well enough to teach it, or I'm not teaching it the way that I really process it. So being able to break it down into those kind of fundamental, developing a system, some kind of open-ended system in anything I felt was was helpful. And that was the most probably enjoyable. It was really the most, uh, I mean, I love being at war. It was great. Uh, I loved going to Afghanistan. I, I you know, I loved it, but uh, teaching was definitely the most rewarding thing I had, and it really started in Afghanistan with with teaching um, the commandos and, and stuff. That was also incredibly rewarding, and, and just I just want to say I owe so much to um, the guys that I worked with on uh, the first deployment and every deployment, um, third group, seventh group guys, uh, the teams, and all that, and, and all the the EOD techs that gave their lives. You know, Chad. Uh, friends that I've, I've lost and um, like everything we did was really to honor them and, and take what, you know, 
what they were doing and doing well and hopefully facilitate that into like the next generation of things. I just think it's incredible experience. It was an incredible experience and I'm just really thankful to have learned from some amazing people. So that's really it. Thank you for listening to our podcast. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and at Facebook by searching at Mentors, the number four M-I-L, and please subscribe to our podcast. It's free and it ensures you're the first to hear our latest podcast show. We have several options depending upon your device and we're at iTunes, SoundCloud, at Stitcher, and at TuneIn Radio. Hey everyone, Robert here. I love supporting veteran-owned companies, and Mentors for Military recently partnered with Skeleton Optics to offer a 10% discount to our listeners. That's right, 10%. These aren't your regular run-of-the-mill sunglasses, by the way. The frames are handcrafted in Italy with Zeiss Vision lenses. Use the code mentors for mil or mentors the number 4 mil at SkeletonOptics.com, and you'll receive your 10% discount automatically at checkout. Hurry up and get on over there to support a veteran-owned company.